Our text this morning was from John 11:53, and went into chapter number 12. So um, about, uh, well, in about a week, April 19th, Jews from all over the world will be celebrating the, the Passover. Friday night is when they traditionally uh, celebrate the Passover. Massive crowds will be in Jerusalem. I've seen pictures uh, at the Wailing Wall of just thousands and thousands of people. And what is so interesting about that is that they are actually celebrating the shadow. The reality happened 2,000 years ago. The shadow is Passover. The reality is Jesus Christ. One week before Passover, 2,000 years ago, the reality for which the sign of Passover was meant stood in front of Jerusalem and drew near and saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And you know what? It is still hidden from the eyes of many, many of those people. Many who have descended from them. Passover, for many of them, there's many, some of them are still looking for the Messiah, but for many of them, the Passover is simply a, uh, a, a tradition, and that's just something that they do. The scene where Jesus wept over Jerusalem happened on this hillside. And once again, I forgot my uh, laser pointer, but let me just, let me just run through this with you real quick. Uh, the, uh, this, this church down here is called the Basilica of the Agony. And the Garden of Gethsemane would have been, the, there are 2,000 year old olive trees there. That was the location of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus, uh, prayed overnight before he was arrested. If you go up to, a little to the right, you see in the middle the gold, the gold dome there. That is a, a Russian Orthodox church and that's called the, the Church of St. Mary the Magdalene. Heather likes to call it the Church of the Golden Onions. Um, <laughs> That is just a church that is a tribute to who um, Mary Magdalene was. But the scene where Jesus wept over Jerusalem, if you look straight up above me, you can kind of see that little blue dome. I don't know how, how good our screen is. That is called Dominus Flevit. And that is where Jesus, in Luke 19, stood over Jerusalem looking at the Temple Mount and wept. And, and said the words so many years ago. Happened right on that hillside. So much history. And I'm going to circle back around to that. But let's go back 2,000 years ago. And let's trace Jesus' steps leading up to this scene in Luke. That uh, we were reading about in John. Um, we have just learned that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. We talked about that last week. The very first verse that Jamie read. John 11.53 tells us. That the hardened Jewish leaders made plans to put him to death. They realized beyond a doubt as Jesus' signs got bigger and bigger and bigger. And this final, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. They realized this in fact is the Messiah. But they plotted to kill him because it's not the Messiah that they wanted. And so the next verse says that he went to um, Ephraim. It's a little town. You see it up there on this map. It's about 12 miles north of, of Jerusalem. And for all practical purposes, it was far enough away that he was out of immediate danger. And you might ask yourself, why did Jesus 
travel north and get away from Jerusalem? Was he scared? Was he afraid that they were just going to take him and and, and um, have all these things happen to him that he didn't want? And the answer is no. The answer is Jesus is sovereign king of the universe. And he knew beyond a doubt that he was to die at the same time that the Jews were slaughtering Passover lambs so that the, sun, the shadow and the reality came together at the same time. And so he went north to Ephraim and then circled back around through Jericho and came back up through Bethany. And he did it, and his timing was impeccable because he's a king of kings and lord of lords. And that, that's, that's where we find Jesus had circled back around through Jericho. You see that little road that goes this way. Jericho's down there, and he came back up to Bethany uh, where um, Lazarus was. And this is where we find our text. And so as we go through the passage today that we just um, read, I want to just look at the different people that John, he brings out who they are and what we can see about the people as we travel uh, back during the time of Jesus. And the first person we see in chapter 12 and verse number 1 is that he's going towards Bethany, and it says it's six days before Passover. Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. They gave him a, a dinner, and Martha served, and Mary bought, brought this expensive um, ointment, a pure nard, Appoint, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary, who, she had a heart of worship. Remember that we're talking about just about a week before this, Jesus, her brother died. Her brother was four days in the grave. The body would have been a stench by now. And Jesus came and raised him from the dead. And she was so thankful and so grateful that she carefully calculated the cost. She decided that the bottle perfume was the the offering of gratitude that she could give to him. And it was an extravagant gift. Her worship was was the result of weighing how much she loved Jesus as Messiah. Her perfume bottle, we're told, was worth a year's wages. Can you imagine that? A year's wages. And, and she was willing to do that. She was willing to, to anoint Jesus' feet with that bottle, that fragrance. She not only showed gratitude, but she had a heart of humble, uh, consecration. When Mary broke that bottle of perfume and then let down her hair, she crushed any future earthly ambitions that she had. Do you know the significance of the bottle? you have any idea why she would have a bottle of perfume that was a year's wages? The answer is that that was probably some sort of dowry. And it was a dowry that was to be used either A, on the day of her marriage, or B, on the day of her death. And she broke that bottle or broke it open or whatever and poured it on Jesus' feet. And when she did that, by breaking the bottle, what she was saying, and this is so important, everybody catch this, she was saying that her future was no longer tied to earthly desires like a husband or an inheritance or anything else, but now her future was tied to Jesus and His mission. Where's your future tied? Is it tied to Jesus and His mission? Are you looking forward to a, a nice retirement and all the things that this world craves? 
Mary realized that following Jesus was more important than any of that. There was another remarkable thing about what she did. We, we, as you read it, you find out that after pouring the ointment on Jesus' feet, she let down her hair. And that's very important. She let down her hair and wiped his feet. Now, she just did the job in her humility of the lowest servant in the house. Do you remember a few verses later in John where the where Jesus rebuked the disciples because none of them were willing to wash another's feet and so Jesus did it? It was the most lowly servant in the house. The literally the, the person with the very lowest status in a household who washed feet. And Mary not only washed Jesus' feet, but the Bible says that she let down her hair. And it was scandalous that she did that. In, in that day, a Jewish woman was to keep her hair up. And only women who had questionable morals let their hair down in public. And she was willing to, to sacrifice for Jesus in such a way that she let down her hair, allowed people to think of what she did as a scandalous thing, all in an effort to worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's her devotion to Jesus Christ. Are you willing to suffer misunderstandings because of your devotion to Jesus Christ? But the, the last thing that we see about what she did, and this is beautiful, the most beautiful thing that she did uh, here is that she had a transformative uh, action. It was infectious. What do I mean by that? The Bible says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There is no way that you could crack open 12 ounces of perfume and the fragrance not fill the house. Have you ever dropped a bottle of one ounce of perfume? Yeah. Now this is 12. 12 ounces that she broke open and poured on Jesus' head. And the fragrance filled the house. And what do we know from this? What do we learn? Your attitude and your worship will affect people around you. Won't they? Your your uh, attitudes are contagious. How much do, value do you place on Jesus Christ, mom and dad? Grandmother, grandfather, teenager? How much value do you place on Jesus Christ? Because your values will be taken on by those around you. Your values are caught more than they're taught. And Mary, by, by uh, having that perfume poured on her feet, she was telling people, Jesus... I value him more than anything else. And the the essence of that offering spread. I would to God that we have people in this congregation who when they come into a room, the fragrance of their love for Jesus Christ just fills that room. We've experienced that, haven't we? I've experienced the opposite, and I'm sure you have too. I remember when I was in, in Pound, I first joined the, the volunteer fire department there. I found that uh, the the fire chief was a real complainer. I mean, he complained about everything. And what did that do to the fire department? Yeah, you know what it did. It, it just infected the whole fire department. We got a new fire chief. And he was a younger guy, and he had a real positive attitude. And it's like the fire department changed overnight because one outspoken person had a positive attitude. If you're a grandparent, a parent, or you're working in, in, in some environment, literally all of life... Your attitude, your worship to God affects everybody around you. And so therefore, as you go out, pray, Lord, help every aspect of my life to be worshiping you so that 
I can be a good testimony and the fragrance of my love for you will, be, will abound wherever I am. There's some other people involved, though. Look at the next verse, verse number four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Although Judas Iscariot is the one speaking, uh, Mark 14.4 and Matthew 26.8 are clear that some of the other disciples felt the exact same way. His attitude was a little bit contagious to some of the groups of the disciples as well. And so they're looking at Mary. He's looking at Mary saying, what a waste. Why did you waste that valuable perfume on, on somebody's feet? On the surface, Judas' uh, objection sounds reasonable, doesn't it? The worth of the perfume was enormous. A year's wages. How many, how many here would love to have a bottle of perfume that you could sell for a year of your wages? Don't raise your hand, but we all would. And if, if you came in here and, and gave it to someone, said here, gave it to, I don't know what, but just gave it to somebody on a special occasion, you might give them, I don't even know, how much is perfume anyway? Anyway, let's just say, let's just throw out a number. You might give them a $100 bottle of perfume, right? Is that a lot? I, I don't even know. Um, but would you give them a bottle of perfume for a special occasion that's worth a year's of your wages? Probably not, would you? And and if you if you saw somebody do that, you'd be like, "Wow, what, that's a, that's a waste." But Judas, the problem with what Judas was doing is that this was done to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and there's nothing too extravagant for a king, is there? Nothing at all is too extravagant. And Judas illustrates that one can. Here's Judas. He, he has been with Jesus for three years. He's heard all the parables. He's seen all the miracles. He saw Lazarus raised from the dead. And Judas had a heart of stone. And it illustrates to us that, that you can see and hear everything about Jesus and it not affect your heart. And the second thing that we know from reading other accounts is that he was literally indistinguishable from all the other disciples. Remember Jesus in a parable said that there's a um, an enemy sowing tares among the wheat. And if you remember that that parable, the, the, the moral of the parable was don't try to distinguish the tares from the wheat right now. God will do that in the end, right? And Judas is completely indistinguishable. He completely deceived the disciples. The disciples, when when Jesus said, one of you is about to betray me, they were saying, is it I? Is it I? They, they couldn't believe it would be Judas. That's how deceptive he was. In the church, people can sit under gospel preaching their whole lives and look and act the part and never see heaven when they die. Let me ask you, is your knowledge of Jesus, is it simply academic? Or is your... Knowledge of Jesus, has it transformed your life? Are you following Jesus because you hope He makes your life good? Or are you following Jesus because He has changed your life? You're so thankful for what He has done for you. 
It, it, it is really a big thing that you check it out and ask the Lord, Lord, does Jesus really change my life? Paul said, examine your salvation. But we see another group in this narrative. Let's, let's look at verse number 10. Verse number 10 says this. It says, now the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to dead, death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews are going away and believing in Jesus. You know, there, there's always people. Uh, to whom Jesus is a danger. And for, um, for the, um, I skipped a whole section of my sermon, so. Alright, that's fine. We'll just keep moving. The chief priest planned to put Jesus to death because Jesus endangered their well-being. And there are always people like that. And so what did they do? They wanted to put Lazarus to death. Now think about this. Talk about destroying evidence. Have you ever ever put yourself in their shoes? Okay, so he died once and he was resurrected. If we kill him again, will he be resurrected again? I wonder if that thought ever crossed their mind. It would cross mine. Would it cross yours? Uh, But they were wanting to destroy the evidence. That is how much they hated Jesus Christ. It was never about the evidence. They never denied his miracles. They didn't deny the resurrection of Lazarus. They wanted to kill him because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away. Going away from the temple. Going away from Judaism. Going away from them and believing in Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Lazarus allowed the the surfacing of hostility. the, The scheming of the rulers and leaders to reach its pinnacle where they not only wanted to kill Jesus, but they also wanted to kill Lazarus. Now remember something about this. The, the Passover is, is at hand. In six days or so, the, there's the Passover. And there are huge crowds coming into Jerusalem. Now this, this is astonishing to me. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, the Josephus, the, the historian, the Jewish historian from the first and second century, said that at one Passover, they counted 2.7 million visitors. Now, if you've been to Israel, you've been around that Temple Mount, think about what 2.7 million people, where did they put them all? One year, uh, in, in the Jewish writings, they used to record how many lambs were sacrificed. And one year, they, they recorded 256,500 sacrificial lambs on that Temple Mount. Now think about this. They they um, they slit their throats and let the blood drain out on the Temple Mount. Then they took that lamb back to their house. Think about the volume of blood that was involved in that. 256,000. There is a massive, massive crowd of people there. And look at verse number 12 of John chapter uh, 12. The next day, Jesus made his first appearance. And it says, on the next day, the large crowd that come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I skipped a section of my sermon, and so I'm going to have to come back around to this. There are two crowds mentioned in John. Did you realize that? Let, Let me show you this real quick. If you go back to 
verse number 9. It says this, When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Now this crowd, this is the Jerusalem people. These are the people in Judea who are in Jerusalem and Jesus is in Bethany. They heard that Jesus was in Bethany. Remember last week we learned it was only two miles away. So they walked from Jerusalem to Bethany to see the spectacle. Okay. Now there was a, there was a night of sleep and we find here on verse number 12, go back to verse number 12, that now Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem and this crowd is bringing palm branches. Now who is this crowd? Well, what we know from history is that the Galileans would travel down the Jordan Valley and come up through Jericho and Bethany into Jerusalem. And do you remember that hillside I showed you? People from Galilee slept in tents on that hillside during Passover time. These people who were, um, who were waving the palm branches, these were people from Galilee coming up. And they were waving these palm branches and they misunderstood completely what was going on. Because what they wanted was salvation from Rome. Now this is really fascinating to me. Um, and I'm going to get into a couple things and then I'm going to draw this up. So stay with me. You ready? On the hillside that we saw on the picture, that's called the Mount of Olives. And olive trees grew all the way across that hillside. But as soon as you cross over the top of that mountain, on the other side, they grew date palms. And so there were no, there were not palm trees on one side. There were olive trees. There were palm trees on the other in Bethany and Jericho and that area. And so what they did is they cut palm branches and started waving it. Now what were they doing? This is a real fascinating interaction. I don't really have time to go through this. But I do want to just mention this. The waving of palm branches, they were on the other side of the Mount of Olives. It could not be seen from Jerusalem at this point. They're waving palm branches, laying them on, on the ground. It's a sign of rebellion against Rome. In two, about 200 years before this, there was a, a Maccabee who conquered um, Simon Maccabee conquered Jerusalem, drove Syrian forces out of Jerusalem, and the crowds welcomed into Jerusalem Simon Maccabee by waving palm leaves saying, basically, good riddance Syrians. And it became a common sign. As a matter of fact, the sign of the Maccabees, their, their coins that they minted had palm branches on them because Jews were perpetually in rebellion against Rome. And here is this crowd of Galileans with Jesus going up the backside of the Mount of Olives, getting ready to come over. We're in full sight of Jerusalem. And in some of the narratives you read, some of them said, you need to make them stop. You need to make them stop doing this because they were afraid if they came over that hilltop and the Roman soldiers saw them waving palm trees, the Romans would have descended upon them. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, the, the history behind that. But this group of people, these Galileans, they wanted salvation from Rome. And so they were singing Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord, 
even the king of Israel. They were singing and crying for salvation. And He came to provide salvation. But He came on a donkey, not a war horse. He came on an animal of peace, not an animal of war. They wanted salvation from Rome. And He was bringing salvation in the form of peace with God. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The people were singing a song for military liberator in whom they thought was a deliverance from Rome. But he, the sovereign king, rode in on a donkey, a peacetime animal, in the fulfillment of prophecy. And you know what? Even today, the mission of Jesus is so misunderstood by people, isn't it? It's profound. In the, in the majority, now understand this, in the majority of pulpits across the United States, it is taught that Jesus came to save you from a bad marriage. It is taught that Jesus came to save you from your needs not being met by others. That Jesus will fix everything. He's gonna fix your kids. He's gonna fix your job, your spouse, even your health. It's being taught in pulpits that Jesus uh, came and He's going to give you a fulfilling life. That's why Jesus came, to give you a fulfilled life. Now, on their website, you might read that they proclaim that Jesus is the way to heaven. But from the pulpit, the only thing that is taught is immediate and temporal needs. Salvation in the temporal world. But praise be to God. Praise the Lord that He came for so much more than that. He came to pay for the sin of the world. He came to take the wrath of Almighty God, and that's the biggest problem anybody has. Jesus came to save us from the wrath of the God of the universe. The result is that the wall of enmity has been broken down between us and God. There's a relationship. He came so that you may one day enter heaven for all of eternity. And for all of eternity, you'll have the good life, if you want to call it that, right? You'll have a relationship with God. No relationships in heaven will be strained or broken. Isn't that so much greater than the temporal relief that so many pulpits they preach to today? It's so much greater. Do you and I want relief from our problems today? No doubt about it. We do. But we have a hope laid up for us in heaven. I want to spend the last few minutes going back to the Luke passage. So if you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19, and we're going to look at verse number 41 and following. I want to show you something and end with something out of Luke. Luke 19, 41. Now remember what we said at the beginning of the message. We said that, that Jesus had been in Bethany And they wanted to kill him, so he went up to Ephraim, and then back to Jericho, and back into Bethany. And then he he comes in the Mount of Olives. And here's what Luke 19.41 says. And when he drew near and saw the city. Now remember, he's coming up the hill. He comes over the hill, and that, that little spot I showed you is just barely over the top of the Mount of Olives, right? And he came over and saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that made for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon the other in you. And why? Why is this going to happen? Look at this very closely. Because you did not know your time of visitation. Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives, standing in that spot, Dominus Flevit, He tells Jerusalem, He weeps over and then tells them the problem. And the problem is, He's weeping because of the crowds that were ignorant of what makes for peace. Jesus said that the judgment is coming to Jerusalem because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now this is really fascinating. Time of your visitation. Have you ever thought about that phrase? That phrase is used only in specific ways when you go through Scripture. In the Old Testament, visitation was used for God's coming to His people. In Luke, God visited His people as well. And always, 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 it was for salvation. The first time that that verse is used, by the way, is in the narrative of Jesus' birth in Luke one thirty-eight. It says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. God is visiting for salvation. That's Luke one sixty-eight. Therefore, He says to Jerusalem, You did not know the time of your visitation. What Jesus is saying here in this verse in Luke is that you do not know that My time of visitation of you was for your salvation. Your eyes are hardened. You can't see it. I'm coming here not to destroy your place in Rome. I'm coming here not to ruin your life. I'm not coming here to take over. I'm coming so that you might have salvation. The time of their visitation, they're ignorant of that. And because of their ignorance, terrible judgment is in store for them. By and large, the Jews rejected Jesus. Remember what we have on Friday? We have the whole crowd. Now, now remember, this is a different crowd. The crowd that's, that said Hosanna on the Mount of Olives is Galilean. The crowd that on Friday said, crucify Him, crucify Him, they were Judean. They were from Jerusalem. They were under heavy influence of the high priests, the priestly class. Is it any different here, by the way? So they're... Jesus knows that they're rejecting Him. And Jesus sees out into the future 40 years later, 70 A.D., when Titus, General Titus, comes with the Roman army and levels Jerusalem. And this is all done because they rejected Jesus Christ. He says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you Surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. They tore down the Temple Mount. They tore down all the, almost all the structures, not all of them. And it laid barren. And then Rome came back and began to rebuild it under Hadrian. I don't know if you've ever heard of Hadrian. In the 130s, the Jews revolted again. The Roman army came in this time and laid waste to Jerusalem completely in, in the early 2nd century A.D. Uh, Helena from the Holy Roman Empire came on 
and made the Temple Mount a garbage dump. All and all this stems from the fact that the Jews did not see what made peace with God. And knowing all of this, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He expresses grief that Jerusalem has rejected his peace proposal. In essence, Jesus is calling for the inhabitants to accept the terms of his offer for peace. Paul acknowledges, turn to um, 2 Corinthians 5. I want to show you what Paul says real quick as we close. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, we'll look at verse number 19. Paul expresses this in his ministry. He's talking about his ministry to the Jews. And he said this, he said, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal to us. We now listen to the message. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you want to get, do you want to follow God's terms of peace? Do you want to have peace with God? Then be reconciled to God. Take on Jesus' sacrifice for your sins. Accept that salvation. Repent of your turning away from Jesus Christ and turning away from God and follow Him and you will have God's terms of peace in hand. The Jews couldn't see it. They were blind. The message of Palm Sunday is this. You ready? The king came to his rebel subjects and offered them terms of peace while time lasted. The terms are simple. Lay down your arms, especially your weapons of self-righteousness, self-sufficiency. Admit your defeat. Accept your full and free pardon and swear your allegiance to the new king in your life. Picture him riding toward Jerusalem, the rebel city Jerusalem. The multitude praises him. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he knows the praise is shallow. In a few days it will vanish away. But does he rebuke him, them? No, he doesn't. He defends them against criticism of the, of the Pharisees. In Luke 19, verses 39 and 40, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He's defending the people following him. He knew that his days were numbered. Not a trace of self-pity in him. Oh, today that you would take God's terms of peace. Let me ask you one more time. How do you know that you have accepted God's terms of peace? How do you know? You go back up to the character. The very first character we looked at, her name was Mary. Mary looked at what God had done for her. She counted the cost and she made an extravagant offer of worship because... She tied her future to Jesus and Him crucified. Have you done that? Have you tied your future to the Jesus? Is that your mental attitude? Is your mental attitude, come what may, I am satisfied in Christ 
and my future is riding on Him. That is the supreme evidence of one who has accepted God's terms of peace. Have you done that? Are you hanging on to things of this world thinking, if I can just get a little bit more of this and get a little bit more of that, are you hanging your, your future on a political ambition? Are you hanging your future on work? Are you hanging your future on your kids or something else? All of these things are going to fade away. And when you cross over in eternity, it'll be absolutely worthless. Tie your future into Jesus by accepting His terms of peace. We thank You, Lord, for these characters that we see in the Bible, the attitudes that come out that we can see so clearly as we study the life of Christ. But most importantly, Lord, we thank You for the salvation that Jesus provided. It's a free salvation. It's, it's a, a generous offer to unworthy people. And Lord, always in a, in, a, in a crowd this size, there are people who are possibly tares among the wheat. Possibly when they cross over into eternity, they'll hear the words of Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonderful things in your name. I will look at them and say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. I pray, Lord, that all of us will examine our lives, examine our desires, our goals, and our dreams, and that you will will show the self-deceived, Lord, their need of salvation. And for those who have uh, trusted in you, and and that's so many in this crowd, so many here in this this sanctuary, I thank you for them. I pray that they will uh, count the cost day by day and count you worthy of every moment of their life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.